you about our daughter's theological formation. She knew what this was and wasn't, um, and she knew what the church was. The church essentially is the gathering. That's what we've been learning. It's the gathering of God's people. So if you look on your sheet, you'll see um, that statement from Jesus that I keep on coming back to, uh, that Craig referred to uh, in his introduction, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So as Craig rightly said, this is Jesus' church. It's he who is doing the building uh, through us. And uh, what he's doing, essentially, is not building buildings out of bricks, but he's gathering. He's gathering his people. So last week, uh, therefore, we started with Jesus. This week, I'm going to lower the bar just a little bit in terms of the sort of theologians of the world and uh, hear what Noel Edmonds has got to, to say. Is Noel Edmonds still a thing? Do, do people sort of know who he is, watch him, that kind of thing? You know, he, he, when I was growing up, my brother and I used to waste our Saturday mornings watching uh, Noel Edmonds on TV for about four hours, this thing called Swap Shop. Um, it's probably on YouTube somewhere. You can get a look at it. It was absolutely ridiculous and rubbish and a complete waste of time. And um, anyway, Noel Edmonds, what does he think of church? He thinks it's the most boring experience known to man. Now, here's the question, and um, just want you to think about this for a moment, just quietly. How would you answer him? How would you answer Noel Edmonds? Have a thing. What would your answer be? See, I think a lot of people would want to say to him, well, no, you just haven't been to my church. Um, you're going to the wrong church. Come to this church where you'll see the music is great, Joe Standwick on drums, um, the coffee is, is real. Um, you know, we had Mr. Kipling Cakes. Well, they were imitation Mr. Kipling Cakes from Aldi, I think. But, you know, um, it's a great church to be. And the preaching, you should hear the preaching. That might be an argument you want to make. The problem with that argument, though, it's a dangerous one to get into because church is still church. And actually, there is nothing inherently exciting or spectacular about the phenomena of church. There's nothing you can observe in church on the surface that would convince Noel to change his view, I don't think. And possibly, if you can observe something in church that would make someone like Noel Edmonds excited, it might be a bad thing. Because think about what happens in most churches the world over. A group of people shuffle into a building. It might be a school, like ours was for years and years. It might be a building like this. It might be under a tree in Africa somewhere. Those people might chat, drink coffee or whatever, and sit down. They'll probably stand up and sing a song. They'll probably sit down again to pray. They'll probably stand again to sing. They'll probably sit down again. They'll probably stand at least one more time. And then somebody will open an old book and explain what's in the book, and then they'll all sit down and chat again over coffee, and eventually everyone will go out, a few people will be left to tidy up and mop the floors and lock up, and that is church. It's not spectacular, is it? At the level of observable phenomenon, it is boring. So if an alien were to come from outer space and look at our church or a typical church, they would not for a moment say, wow, this is where the action on this planet is. And however distinctive and exciting we might feel our particular church is, however well we might think things are done, however much we might enjoy it, it's a dangerous argument to say, actually, church is inherently exciting. So how would you answer Noel? Or do you want to just say he's right? Well, I think the problem is that he doesn't understand where we are when we do church. 
See, we are in a building or under a tree or in a schoolroom or whatever, but according to the Bible, that is not the only place we are. We're also gathered around Jesus Christ in heaven. And that's uh, what we're going to think about tonight. So I'm going to just very briefly recap, and this is, this is repetition. And if you're doing startup, this is the third time you'll have heard this uh, sort of material. And, and that's good because repetition is the mother of learning and hopefully it's sinking in. But I'm recapping deliberately to kind of get us to where we're going to get to and to see things from uh, a slightly different point of view. So first heading is there is only one true church, and it's the church that Jesus is gathering Last week we saw three things about the gathering. It's the result of salvation. So when you hear the gospel and you respond in faith, you come into the church. We'll see that in a bit more detail in a moment. The essential activity of church, both in forming the church to begin with and then building the church, is the word of God. You can't have a church, a true church, without the word of God. It's the word of Jesus that is doing the gathering. And then the purpose is the gathering of the nation. So yes, there is an end in itself. This is what Jesus is doing. But the church has a mission to continue that gathering to the ends of the earth, and that's what we're seeing in 1 Timothy. In other words, Jesus is building his church through his word, from all nations, and through the gospel. The church Jesus is building is therefore the gathering of people who have responded to the gospel, who will be with him from all eternity. And this is the bit that's um, a kind of a recap, I suppose, that the story of the Bible is the story of that gathering. Let's recap it very quickly. Firstly, God was gathering at creation. Have a look on your sheet at Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. If you want to think a little bit more about that, let us, what, what is the, who is the us? First night at NYC, we're going to talk about that. It's very important. But God says, let us make man in our image. And he then creates the world and he puts the man and woman in the garden. And the relationships in the garden are the key to what this world is all about. God made the world so he could relate to his image bearers and they could relate to each other in this perfect eternity. And you see a glimpse of that in Genesis 3, verse 8. Uh, God walking and talking in the garden with the man and woman. And so here then is the first church. It's a very small church, but it is a perfect church. God has gathered his people. He's relating to them in this perfect world. And therefore, the church that we see in Eden in Genesis 1 and 2 contains the sort of trajectory for the whole Bible, for where God is taking the whole story, contains the blueprint, the DNA of the end of the story. And you can see that. We won't turn to it now, but you can see that by turning to Revelation 21 and 22, where you see the great assembly of all God's people who he has gathered, walking in fellowship with him at the end. Because God doesn't just want Adam and Eve in his church. He wants millions and millions of people to be gathered with him in the end. But there's a problem. Genesis 3.23, Adam and Eve overstep the boundary they have given, that God has given them. They eat the fruit he has commanded them not to eat. They rebel against God. They choose their own story, as we saw this morning. And so, Genesis 3.23, God banishes them from the garden to work the ground from which they've been taken. In other words, the first punishment 
the judgment of God on sin is a scattering outside the garden, an undoing of the church, an undoing of the, of the creation. They are scattered away from God and his kingdom into a cursed world of shame and disintegration. And so where you had in Genesis 1 and 2, heaven and earth kind of united in this one kind of perfect whole. Now heaven and earth are separated. This is exile. We're on earth. God is in heaven. And the world is a, is a kind of a, sh- a foreshadowing of both heaven and hell, if I can put it that way. And here's the important thing for our topic. We'll never understand, we'll never appreciate or understand the brilliance of the local church unless we really feel the pain of that scattered existence. God wants to gather his people to himself. But in our world now, we see scattering. So what's God doing about it? Well, the whole story of the Bible answers that question, and it begins with Abraham in Genesis 12. Have a look at it there on the sheet. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. So God starts with this this massive plan for the world, and it kind of narrows down to one man, Abraham, and then his family, his descendants, the nation of Israel. God gives them a promise, and the promise there, you'll see, is a restatement of his original creation purposes. It's not just a few nice things for Abraham. It is actually very kind of uh, deliberately, specifically, a recapitulation, a repromising of what was lost in the garden. And then if you follow through the rest of the Bible, and if you're doing overview, you'll have seen this week after week as you kind of chase through these themes. You know, really, the rest of the Bible is structured around what is happening to the promise of Abraham, whether a promise of God to Abraham, uh, whether the promise is uh, being fulfilled or whether it's being challenged, uh, whether it's being enjoyed by God's people or whether it's being lost. And one way of thinking about that is are they gathered or are they scattered? Are they inside the kingdom or are they outside the kingdom? And that's why the exile is such an important part of the Old Testament story. Because it's another reversal of the gathering. It's another Genesis 3.23 moment when God says, no, I'm going to spit you out of the land in judgment. You're no longer my people. You're scattered in Assyria and then Babylon. And this is a reminder that spiritually the people are still in exile away from God because of sin. That sin needs putting right before the, uh, the barrier can be mended between heaven and earth and God can be reunited with his people. And that brings us to Jesus and the New Testament because spiritually, theologically, the New Testament opens with Israel still in exile. They're still scattered. Yes, they've come back to the physical land, but they're still in exile away from God. And so in the light of this, look at what Jesus says in Mark 1.15. The time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. Jesus' opening line in Mark's gospel is an announcement and an invitation. An announcement that the kingdom has come, that is, is near. The kingdom means that the barrier between heaven and earth is about to be mended. People will now, once again, be able to come into the kingdom out of exile. And the invitation, repent and believe the good news. Believe the gospel and you'll be in the kingdom. But Jesus doesn't just preach that invitation. He makes it a reality. And he does it, as we saw in detail last week, through his 
death on the cross. So have a look at Ephesians 2.13, for example. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, scattered, removed, in exile, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. So that the church that Jesus is building consists of the people that Jesus has brought back to himself through his blood shed on the cross. Everybody who trusts Jesus' death on the cross is part of his church. Nobody who doesn't is part of his church. Jesus died to bring the church in existence. He died to gather God's people together. But the story doesn't end there. Jesus dies, rises, ascends, and then what happens? Well, Acts 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and to the and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the gathering continues as Jesus sends his people out. Another kind of a, a scattering, actually, you see in Acts, isn't it? But now they're equipped with the Holy Spirit to witness to the gospel, to actually continue the work that Jesus began. And therefore, we, in this period of time, between Jesus' first coming and his return, we're in the age of the church, the age in which God is gathering his people through the spirit-filled witness of his witnesses. And so this is the window of opportunity that we live in. The spirit is active. Jesus is at work building his church through the gospel, going out to the ends of the earth. And that's going to continue to the last day until, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 1, which isn't on the sheet, Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, the times would have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. So God's great purpose for his world is to form a people who will be with him forever. That's why he created the world. That's what you see at the end of the Bible. He's worked through the history of Israel to show us what that's going to be like. It's culminated in Christ, his death on the cross, dying to mend the barrier between heaven and earth. And now he is sending out his spirit-filled witnesses to bring people in. That's a summary of the whole Bible under the theme of the church. We can summarize it with this um, statement from the Nicene Creed, which says, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Catholic doesn't mean Roman Catholic, it just means one universal church. There is only one church. We believe, because you can't see this in entire church, you have to ha believe it by faith. And then apostolic, because it's created by the gospel. So a kind of a theological summary of what we've just said. Okay, so I think that's a recap. That's where we kind of got to last time. And I wanted to get us there again, because now I want to just kind of look at this in a little bit of a different angle. And that is to say that the church has two expressions. So we've kind of, we've traced the theme kind of historically, if you like, through the Bible. We're now kind of just going to look at it through a slightly different lens that the Bible gives us. The church has two expressions. In the Bible, the word church is a very ordinary word. It is, as uh, my daughter Lucy understood when she was just two years old, as I said before, uh, simply the gathering. It's a crowd of people. It could be a crowd of horses. It is correct to say horsey church. It is also correct to look at a football match or a crowd or even in Acts 19, a riot. And as Luke does, describe it as a church because church simply means, literally what the word means, is gathering. Now, the New Testament then does two things with that ordinary word. It uses it in two different ways. It says there is a heavenly church and there is an earthly church. 
And all I'm going to do for the rest of our time is, is to work out the relationship between those two. Firstly, the church in heaven. But as soon as I say heaven, we have a problem in our thinking. See, one challenge for us in Bible reading is to recognize that we don't come to the Bible with a blank piece of paper or kind of clear lenses. We all come with a particular framework of presuppositions and preconceptions. So when I say heaven, certain things pop into our heads that we just almost can't help because of just years of living and hearing the word and so on. I think when I say heaven, most people think up there. It's sort of beyond us. It's sort of in space. And maybe there are angels sitting around on clouds playing harps. I've sort of stereotyped a little bit. Sorry if that's not what you think, but that is kind of what we think, isn't it? But heaven in the Bible is not quite like that. Heaven is really the present dimension of God's rule. So heaven is a place where God is. So rather than thinking of heaven as a different place, it's really the dimension of God's rule. So it overlaps completely with our world. Normally, it's secret and hidden. But the key is it is where God is, not where he isn't. Two examples from the New Testament. Firstly, Revelation 7, verse 9. Here is John given a kind of a, a little peek into heaven. He says, after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Now, when you read that, you kind of think, well, that's a kind of a picture of the future, isn't it? But actually, it's more of an unveiling of the present reality, because in chapter 6, these people standing around the throne say, how long, sovereign Lord, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? In other words, the people that John sees gathered in heaven are waiting, waiting for the end, just as we're waiting. They're waiting for the future along with the whole of heaven. And then second example, and I could have given you lots more, is Colossians 3, 1 to 3. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Did you know that you died? Did you know that you're in heaven? That is what Paul is saying. But we're still here in this chapel, aren't we? We're in, it feels like he's saying we're in two places at once. Well, he is kind of saying that. We're here in High Street in the chapel, but we're also in heaven because we're related to Christ through his death and resurrection. And therefore, the church has this same quality. Have a look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. Is it on the sheet? Great. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the holy Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, do you think he's talking to dead people? Because that would work, wouldn't it? Welcome to heaven. You've come to the city of the living God. There are all these dead people here. God is here. Jesus is here. The saints are here. But he's not talking to dead people. He's talking to the living flesh and blood readers of the letter to the Hebrews. So when he says you have come, he means you have come when you put your faith in Christ. 
I mean, you do believe, don't you, that you have a real relationship with a real person called Jesus. I take it that you do, if you're a Christian. Where is Jesus? He's in heaven. He's not everywhere in the same way that God the Spirit or God the Father is. He is in heaven. And we, if we're related to him, are there with him. Therefore, if you're one of Jesus' people, you are there in this church. What a place to be if you look at it. All God's people are there. Think of a famous Christian. Wesley, Luther, Calvin, your granny, or whoever you, know, you want to think of. Sorry if your granny's still alive. Um, but <laughs> well, she's, she's there as well, isn't she? Um, I'm not sorry if your granny's still alive. Sorry, forget that. That's, that's sad, but you, know, you get what I'm saying. Um, Jesus is there. The angels are there. Everybody who you want to be there is there. This is like the party of all time, isn't it? And this is what the writer of the Hebrews says is the heavenly church gathered around Christ and you're there from the moment you believed so there's the first way the new testament speaks of the church some people talk about the invisible church but I'll show you why I don't particularly think that's helpful better to talk about the heavenly church because the second way the new testament speaks about the church is the church on earth the local church now this is where we've got to uh, do some thinking notice in the new testament the way um, Paul and Luke and others speak of the churches. I'll just flip some things on the screen very quickly. Acts 11:22. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. Acts 14:23. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church. Acts 14:27. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them. 1 Corinthians 1:2 to the church of God in Corinth. 2 Corinthians 11:28. Uh, whoa premature uh well obviously not on never mind 2 corinthians 11 20, 28 and apart from other things there is the daily pressure on me says paul of my anxiety for all the churches now what do you notice about those things they're all very ordinary um interesting in that last one that paul doesn't say uh to the church for the church he says for the churches and therefore I want to get really precise here about the way the new testament speaks about church do you notice he doesn't talk just about the church generally on earth? doesn't talk about it. He talks about churches or the church in heaven. That's how the New Testament speaks. But if you listen to people, that is not how we tend to speak. Christians often are very vague about this. So you'll hear people say things like, I want to do something for the church in Lancaster. How is the church in Britain going to cope with this new challenge? That kind of thing. You hear that kind of language? It's not the way the Bible speaks. The Bible doesn't aggregate all the Christians in a country or a city and say, the church doesn't do it. It says there is a church in heaven and there are local churches. Why? Well, here we are. Here's the crucial thing. This is the kind of climax of the, of the talk. But what is the relationship between the two? Well, the local church, and if you, if you get this, you get everything. The local church is the expression of the heavenly church. And that word expression is important, and I can't find a better word for it. Because the New Testament never speaks of the local church as part of the heavenly church. So you'd never hear Paul saying, I'm going to Corinth, and there is a part of the body of Christ. No, he treats each local church fully as the body of Christ, the full expression of the body of Christ. It is the church of Christ fully realized in this particular place. And so... It is like the Loch Ness Monster, which I gave a trailer for two weeks ago. And I said to people to ask you, 
um, about it, and I hadn't even talked about it, so apologies for that. But the point is that when you see, bless you, the point is when you see the Loch Ness Monster, what people, I mean, this is a very good shot. <laughs> Normally, you don't see so much. Normally, you just see a little hump or a little kind of thing sticking out. And what do you go home and proclaim to your family or friends? You don't just say, I've just seen a bit of the Loch Ness Monster. You say, I've seen the Loch Ness Monster. So church is like that. What have we seen today? Noel Edmonds, what have we seen today? As we gathered here this morning and this evening, we've seen not a bit of the church, we've seen the church, an expression of the church, like a little hump of the Loch Ness Monster. So John Woodhouse says, when, where members of God's household meet together with their Lord to continue to be built into the church that Jesus is building as they speak the word of Christ to one another, there you get a glimpse of the church that Jesus is building. There, the church that Jesus is building can be seen. See, here is the sort of the little bit, the little body, the little head, the little hump of the Loch Ness Monster just popping out, if you like, from heaven to earth. So when you see the local church, you see the whole thing. Okay, fill in the blanks. Here is a summary sentence. God is gathering a people to be with him in... I'll let you do the rest. I'll give you 10 seconds to do it. Okay, God is gathering a people to be with him in eternity. That heavenly gathering is seen now in the earthly local church. Anyone get it all right? Well done. Implications, just to finish off very quickly. Firstly, church is where the action is. Because churches gather in the presence of and under the authority of Christ, each local church is directly and completely a church in its own right. It fully enjoys the heavenly reality and all the benefits. This means that if you want a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven, then where do you go? Well, don't look at the big sort of global denominations or Christians sort of doing social action but you look at the ordinary local church, you look at what's going on there and you see a glimpse of what God is doing on earth. It also means in terms of leadership and government of churches, each church is, is autonomous. So it's ruled, it's led by the leaders that God appoints in the church. There isn't like a bishop in, where would the bishop be? Blackburn, Carlisle or Washington or something like that, that, that we can go to for a higher leadership. Christ is the higher leadership and he rules through his word. And that's helpful for us to remember, and we'll come back to this in a future week, that it does put denominations and parachurch organizations in their proper place. Those big organizations can seem exciting and powerful, but theologically, it's the local church that really has a biblical mandate. So theologically, I don't want to um, criticize any denomination we'll come to what what's good about them in future weeks but strictly speaking there isn't a church of england there would be if you could gather every christian together in england 
uh, but it's not a church, it's an organization. And more challengingly, what that means for us is that God's mission depends on local churches. There isn't a sort of HQ that we can look to that is going to sort out the mission. It's down to us. If we want to train leaders for the next generation, if we want to plant churches, if we want to see the 350,000 people in the Bay reach for Christ, it's down to us, local churches, working together. There is no sort of cavalry coming over the hill that says, we'll take care of it. And personally speaking, I think it means that as a, as a pastor of a local church, there is, there is no higher privilege. There's no sort of greater thing that you, can, that you can do in terms of climbing up the ladders of the denomination or speaking at great conferences or writing books or traveling around the world. This is, this is it. Leading, serving, being a member of the local church. Doesn't get better. Second implication, you can't love the church You have to love a church. This is really important. It's a good foundation to sort of put in place. That is, being a committed member of a particular church is not optional. See, some people say, well, I'm a Christian, I love the church. And then they go around different churches each week. That doesn't mean they love the church. It means they don't love the church. They don't want to commit to a particular group of people because the church is expressed here in a particular group of people. That doesn't mean that you can't change from one church to another if certain needs arise. But it does mean that we can't sort of float around. We've got to be committed to a particular group of people who you can encourage and build up and work together uh, to grow the church. And it also means that instead of worrying about church unity in, say, Lancaster or Lancashire or England or whatever, the church unity that matters is is the church unity within the local church. That's what we see in the letter to the Ephesians. That's what proclaims Christ to the world. Third implication is that Noel Edmonds was right. Church is boring in the sense that church is ordinary. It's earthly. It's mundane. If spectacular things start happening in your church, like, I don't know, fireworks or angels or magic or prophecies or people falling over, leave. Church is meant to be boring. It is meant to be mundane. It's meant to be people gathered around a word. And as soon as the other things come in, you've got something else because you're trying to impress the Noel Edmonds of the world. But when I say it's boring, of course, I don't really mean that. It's ordinary, but it's extraordinary. We're doing really ordinary things, sometimes really boring things. Some of us were involved for years and years and years in meeting at the school, and that involved getting there early, getting, leaving late, loading the van when our cupboard got taken away. That was a big crisis. Our cupboard got taken away, so we had to buy a van. One day I got a letter from the head telling, telling me off for killing the goldfish, the, the tropical fish. Really boring, really boring, ordinary stuff. Never going to make it to the 6 o'clock news. Some of you spent the afternoon chopping up vegetables. Wasn't a spiritual experience, that was it? Chopping up veggies for the veggie chili. Ordinary stuff, and yet extraordinary, extraordinary. Because here, in his ordinary and extraordinary way, as the word is going out, as we serve in those ways together, God is building uh, something that is going to last forever. There's a quote I like from G.K. Chesterton, which says, The church is rushing through the ages as the winged thunderbolt of thought and everlasting enthusiasm a thing without rival or resemblance, and still as new as it is old. 
I don't really know what he means, <laughs> but I like it. <laughs> and maybe we can talk about what he means uh, over dinner. But we may find it hard to believe, as we gather together in our mixed and ordinary Sunday meetings and groups, that here we have the blueprint for the world. It's here in the local church that God is doing something that will last forever. And so, like a number of things in the Christian life, you don't have to go, you get to go. And we'll talk more about that next week.